Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning. Glad to be here, as always, the second sermon in what will be an eight-week series on Tim Keller's book, Hope in Times of Fear. Um, For the readers among us, this is chapters two and three. Last week I said health emergencies, mental health crisis, violence, sickness, death. They have led many of us into what is a crisis of hope. Yet we have many good reasons to remain hopeful, mainly The reality of the resurrection of Jesus means the reality of hope. We have a certain hope. Well, this week I want to begin exploring the nature of that hope. The nature of that hope. Let's look at how the resurrection of Jesus gives us a future hope and a glorious hope. So I want to say is essentially that the resurrection means we don't just have hope for the future, we have hope from the future. Not just for the future, but from the future. If you would have asked 20-year-old me, 20-year-old Jordan, What did Jesus do to save you from your sins? I'd have said the cross, obviously, and I'd have been right, if I, uh, at least half right. If you were to go on 20-year-old Jordan, may I further inquire as to the point of the resurrection? I'd have said, well, to prove Jesus was the Son of God, and what he taught was true. It was a verification of his identity. Again, half right. And no doubt then you would have said to me, pray tell, good sir. What say you concerning Peter's words in 1 Peter 1 that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? And do you know what I would have said to you? I would have said, by Jove! (laughs) Do you mean to tell me that the resurrection is more than simply a verification of Jesus' identity as the Son of God? Are, Are you trying to tell me that the resurrection of Jesus was nothing less than a spiritual kind of time travel? Are, are you trying to tell me that the eternal future of God's glorious kingdom has been pulled from the future into the present and that God Almighty has seated Jesus far above every rule and authority and dominion and over every name that is named in, in this age or in the age to come, thereby launching the project of new creation itself, just like Ephesians 1 says, which you would have said to me, precisely, young man, precisely. <laughs> Good morning. I don't know why our conversation would have taken on a 19th century British flair, but it just, in my mind, that's how it worked. The point is this. Here's the point. The resurrection didn't just prove Jesus' identity as the Son of God. The resurrection launched the kingdom of God. It launched the kingdom of God, which is what? It'd be helpful to know what it is. Let's define our terms a little bit. The kingdom of God is what the prophets hoped for, that one day a descendant of King David would rule and bring justice to the poor and to the nations. And then in Isaiah 11, he foresees that the, this descendant will heal all of creation itself. And that's what we just heard read. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the goat. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Here's the kingdom of God. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So Isaiah further envisions that the kingdom of God is a, it's a future reality wherein God destroys death forever. He dries up every tear. 
and he restores earth to the Edenic paradise that he made it to be before our sinful rebellion spoiled everything. Uh, you know, before our rejection of God severed our relationship with him, our relationship with others, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship really with all of creation, it broke everything. And the result is murder and war and racism and despair and poverty and pandemics and abuse and pollution and could go on. Because where God is not acknowledged as king, darkness and death follows. That's a spiritual principle. So Psalm 96 anticipates this great reversal, the great reversal of this curse, this, this reversal of darkness and death. Isaac Watts paraphrased this psalm in his Christmas classic, Joy to the World, which if you read the lyrics, I think is more fittingly an Easter anthem. Having prayed the Psalms his entire life, I wonder if this was on Jesus' heart as he flew from the grave. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. I come to make my blessings flow far as the curse is found. Everywhere the curse will be undone. That's the kingdom of God. It's like when the hobbit Samwise asked Gandalf after the ring of evil is destroyed. I told someone I'd only do every other sermon, by the way. <laughs> he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And I can't think about the great redeeming of all things without hearing this line, because the answer is yes. To which Gandalf responds, uh, Sam says, is every, what's happened with the world? And then Gandalf responds, a great shadow has departed. And then Tolkien writes, and then the wizard laughed. And the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. That is the laugh of the resurrected Christ, from whom shadows are fleeing. So in the resurrection, the future of God's no more tears kingdom is brought from the future to the present. So our hope is not just for the future, it's from the future. But the question is, am I, am I over-promising here? Because thorns still infest the ground, obviously. And there are still shadows, obviously. Well, on the one hand, the kingdom is already here. Jesus launched it. He launched his ministry with these words. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Okay, the kingdom is here. On the other hand, Jesus spoke of the kingdom as not yet having come in its fullness. And we heard read by Bert, whose voice I wish I had. The kingdom, sorry, it's just such a beautiful voice. Uh, so deep. And, uh, the kingdom of God is like grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. So if I could have a, the slide. One of the smallest of all seeds grows into this tree. He says the kingdom is like this. It's like a seed that's been planted on earth but has not yet grown to full stature. And that is the tension we live in. It's the tension we live in. We've heard it called the already, the not yet. So here's a helpful graph from Keller's book about just kind of a visual, visualizing where we are in time. So the top is what most people in Jesus' day expected and what I think we often expect. There's the age of this world, brokenness, sin, and death. Jesus comes, boom. New age. Done. Nice and clean. Nice and tidy, right? Bottom. This is reality. We've got the age, sin and death and brokenness. Then we have Jesus' coming, the Messiah, and his resurrection, which launches the age to come. And now we live in the overlap. The seed has been planted. It's growing. And yet, we continue to live in this age. That is the already, the not yet. Well, Christianity is full of tensions, isn't it? And I think many of our errors come from trying to resolve them too neatly. Like we just have to get our minds around them fully and control them. So, for example, in an attempt to resolve the already not yet tension, some branches of Christianity have gone towards what's called an over-realized eschatology, which is to say that the future of God's kingdom is fully here now. It's, it's fully here. And so uh, the prosperity gospel is like 
easiest target here. If you're faithful, then God will immediately make you happy and healthy and wealthy. No, why? Because the resurrection launched new creation. It didn't consummate it. Other branches resolved attention by living, going the opposite, under-realized eschatology. That's when the future of God's kingdom is just so far off, we can't possibly pray for healing or for deliverance or for blessing or for change because now it's just the time to grin and bear it until the kingdom's here, right? It's powerless. This tension is hard because it means, here's our invitation. We join with Jesus in praying, Father, may your kingdom come, may your will be done in Ukraine in my life, in my kid's life, in this cancer, in this sorrow, in this sickness. And we pray that with great reason to hope that actually that's effective. God is going to work through our prayers. And yet, and yet, we're also being forced up against the reality that sometimes the answer to those prayers is a not yet, which we experience as a no. Now keep in mind, however, that not yet is very different from no. In the future, we will look back today on on the lingering suffering and the the lingering grief of our life with crystal clarity that our prayers for the kingdom to come into our pain hadn't been a no, it had been a not yet. So a great example of this I came across several years ago is when Jonathan Evans, the son of the famous pastor, Tony Evans, was speaking at his mother Lewis's funeral. And he shared about wrestling with God through what he felt like was unanswered prayer because he had been praying for his mother to be healed um, and the answer was no. And um, I'm not sure if it was his mother or grandmother, actually. But he was praying for healing. The answer was no. She passed away. And some of you have experienced that reality. It's devastating. And as he's processing that with the Lord, here's what he felt like the Lord said. And maybe you can hear it as a word to your grief. Jonathan, there has always only been two answers to your prayer. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Victory belongs to me. The two answers to your prayer are yes and yes. But that's, that's the hope of the resurrection from the future. That's the perspective from the future, which we have to fight for today because the tension that we live in. You know, John in Revelation foresees that God is going to wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We call this in our home the no more tears place. That's the kingdom of God. In the words of Second Peter, that time, our time in history now, and already not yet, it's like the dawn. Because if I could have the slide of the dawn. Thank you, Jake. Great job back there. Um, the dawn, light and dark are both present at, at, at once, right? Neither is present in full, but light is slowly overtaking the dark. And the, but the daylight's fruition, it's only a matter of time. It's certain, but it's not fully here. That is the time we are in in history. The Anglican hero John Stott offers several, several applications of this already not yet tension. He says, take, for example, truth, the, the idea of truth. All right, well, in terms of truth, the already means God has spoken. We have his words. We have the Holy Scriptures. We have the wisdom of the church, but especially the Holy Scriptures, so we can know truth. But in terms of the not yet, we must be humble about our ability to understand and interpret it because some of it's confusing and difficult and brings up questions we're not totally sure how to answer. And so what does this mean? It means we live with confidence in the truth and conviction, but with a spirit of charity and humility, especially in non-essentials. Well, how about personal growth when you're praying for change? Well, in terms of the, the already, the risen Christ has given you his spirit, 
So he's freed you from slavery to sin and darkness. You no longer need to be a slave to sin. But in terms of the not yet, our fallen nature remains for now. So we can't expect easy change or quick perfection or or quick fixes. So therefore, we ought to be hopeful about our ability to change over time, but realistic about how much sin does grip us. So, you know, you don't pray once or twice for freedom from sexual or substance addiction. No, it's going to take something like the Sexual Integrity 101 class that 15 or 20 of us just completed. You know, in addition to maybe counseling, a long obedience in the same direction. It's going to mean being honest and vulnerable with the sin that remains, not ashamed of it because you're forgiven, but wrestling with it. What of the church? In terms of the already, Jesus is risen. He's present in our midst this morning, so revival and transformation can happen. In terms of the not yet, don't be too surprised by brokenness in the church because sin and error error will remain until Christ returns. So therefore, what's the application? Don't look for the perfect church. It doesn't exist. You know, every church is perfect until you walk into it, right? <laughs> look for a, like a church that's haltingly perhaps, but authentically growing in Christ-likeness. So rather than trying to resolve the messy tension too easily, I invite, I invite you to live into it and be strengthened by it like an athlete is by tension. But knowing all the while that the resurrected Christ, in him we have the future now. In the resurrection, the morning star, says Peter, the morning star of new creation has dawned and the sunrise is certain. Listen really carefully to what he says in 2 Peter 1.19. He says, as a lamp shining in a dark place, listen to Christ. As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, there's dawn, and the morning star rises, that's Christ, where? In our hearts. Which means the power, that, the power that made everything and that is remaking everything and that rose Christ from the dead now comes into us. The morning star in our hearts. So those baptized into Christ through faith are living, in a sense, in the future kingdom. The kingdom of God is now in us, making us new creations. What does this mean practically? I just want to highlight two things. It means the freedom of the kingdom and the glory of the kingdom. The freedom of the kingdom and the glory of the kingdom. So first it means we can experience the freedom of the kingdom, I think especially in two ways. Freedom from fear, uh, sorry, shame of sin and condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we know that our sins are forgiven? Do you ever wrestle with that in your conscience? How do I know that my sins are forgiven? The resurrection. Why? Well, consider a five-year jail sentence. How do you know when the penalty is finally paid? Well, when the jail is unlocked and you walk free, right? Well, the Bible says the sentence for sin is death and that Jesus is paying the penalty for us. So if the penalty hadn't been fully paid, Jesus would still be in the grave, locked up. See? But his walking free was like him, like getting out of jail. There's no longer a penalty. There's no longer, the wrath of God has been satisfied. Your sins are paid in full. The resurrection has stamped you, paid in full. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, the protagonist, Christian, is running onward in great difficulty. And he's strained down by this huge weight on his back of sin. And I know you and I have both experienced that feeling. Bunyan writes, Christian ran thus until he came to the place that a cross stood, and a little below the cross was a grave. Just as Christian came to the cross, his burden loosed off his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble until it came to the mouth of the grave, where it fell in, and I saw it no more. 
Christian was then glad and lightsome and gave three leaps of joy and went on singing, Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that was there put to shame for me. So I just, how many of you can testify um, to, to an experience in your life where that rang true? Many of us can, can't we? I know we can all testify to the weight of sin and shame. I know many of your stories can testify to the way that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus has fallen and you've been healed. So Christ's resurrection means that freedom from shame and from sin, but it also means freedom from fear of death and dark powers itself. So the evil powers that insult and enslave us, they're like mold. They're like mold because they grow in darkness. They flourish in darkness. But the morning star of Christ has risen in our hearts, says Peter. They have less and less quarter in which to hide. Like trolls, they must flee the dawning of the morning sun. You see? Terrified of the light of Christ. Moreover, the resurrection means that death itself is defanged. Jonathan Edwards has observed, and, and many others, that though we physically still die, death can now only infinitely enhance our experience of the love and the joy of Christ's presence. Of course, we who grieve don't experience that, but those who go to be with the Lord This is a sentiment well expressed in George Herbert's poem, Time. He says, speaking to death, he says, Christ's coming hath made man thy debtor, since by thy cutting he grows better. So he's saying to death, death by your cutting, man grows better, because we go to be with Christ in his presence and with his joy. Man is indebted to death, you see, by our cutting we grow better. Not only that, but the resurrection of Christ, as we've said, is a guarantee of our eventual resurrection when death will be finally undone forever. So that means freedom. His resurrection means freedom, but it also means glory. Three ways. The resurrection means that Christians do not follow a dead leader's teachings. We follow a risen Lord in a loving relationship through union with Christ. Now, if you follow the long thread of God's glory in the Scriptures— You just follow it along, it gets to the temple. That's where all threads lead. And the temple was the way that God's glorious presence could dwell on earth without killing everyone around him, right? The the robes, the priests, the sacrifices, the cleansings, the courts, it was all a way of protecting unholy people from a holy God. But then Jesus comes along and says, I am the temple. What he meant was nothing less than, I am the very glory of God in your midst. Keller characteristically notes that the founders of other religions built temples, but Jesus is the temple to end all temples. And thus, when Jesus breathed his last from the cross, the curtain in Herod's temple, separating the holy place from the holy of holies, was torn as from a hand of heaven, top to bottom. At this moment, that temple was destroyed and a new one was built. And when you and I are united to the risen Christ through the Spirit, the Shekinah glory of God that has previously dwelled inaccessibly behind the curtain is now available to us. And this means glory for you. So a Christian is not an adherence to a a code of ethics. They're, They're not just a person who is forgiven. They are a person who has been remade from within by the very glory of God. The tongues of fire that fell on Pentecost Pentecost were a symbol of, of the fire of God's glory that is remaking the world and is now remaking you from within. It also means glory for the community, not just for the individual, because though we each are a temple, Peter says, we are also all together living stones in a temple, right? 
So his glory births a transformed community. The church isn't simply a collection of individuals who are forgiven. It is a holy nation. It is a counterculture. It is an alternative society showing the world how family dynamics and marriages and parenting and race relationships and roommates can live and how business should be done as the Spirit of God heals all things in us. Our healing extends to the world. The church shows the world what a new humanity should be. Ideally. And lastly, it means glory for the world. It's self-evident that when people live and lust after their own glory, the result is conflict and violence and, and exploitation. But the glory of Jesus is dawning and will one day blaze unhindered all over the world. The world will be full of his glory as the waters cover the sea. And then that day, peace and harmony and justice and shalom. So the resurrection is more. It's more than just proof of who Jesus was. It is the morning star that signals the dawn of the kingdom of God. It means that our freedom means we're free from sin and shame and darkness and death, and it means glory for the individual, the community, and the world. Well, remember Samwise's question to Gandalf after the ring of evil is destroyed? The scene, I think, just so sweetly summarizes and captures our glorious hope. He says, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then the wizard laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring, and then the sun will shine out all the clearer, his tears ceased, and his laughter welled up, and laughing, he sprang from his bed. How do I feel? Sam cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, and he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs that I've ever heard. That's the kingdom from the future present to us now. And so we join with Jesus in praying, Father, may your kingdom come and may your will be done in us and through us and in your world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.